From the MGMA in-home studios, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams. When somebody goes to Starbucks and buys a $4.85 latte, the reason they're doing that is they want to buy the start of a day. They're not buying a coffee. They're buying the start to a day. When somebody goes to the doctor, right, or the nurse practitioner, or the PA, the reason they're going is usually one of two things, and a colleague told me this a long time ago. It is either that they are in pain and it needs to be taken care of, or they need to squelch some sort of anxiety about a condition. Every prevention visit falls under that. Every other visit falls under that. They're either in pain emotionally or physically, or they need to tap down some sort of anxiety that they, they need to solve something. I mean, how are we creating convenience around that? That's Dr. Wendy Sue Swanson talking about anticipating patients' needs and the need to adapt to future technology. We'll hear more from Dr. Swanson on digital innovation in healthcare, balancing the human touch with technology, and enhancing the patient experience. But first, a word from our sponsors. The first healthcare compliance software solution creates confidence among compliance professionals through education, resources, and support in the areas of HIPAA, OSHA, human resources compliance, and fraud, waste, and abuse laws. Serving clients across the United States, the company's evolving platform provides real-time insight for board reporting and across multiple locations. For more information, please visit firsthcc.com. NextGen Healthcare is a leading healthcare software and services company. Their mission is to empower the transformation of ambulatory practices of all sizes. Comprehensive, configurable, specialty-specific clinical content and built-in surgery scheduling enable a truly tailored and fully integrated experience. The results are better clinical outcomes, higher quality care, and improve clinician and patient satisfaction. To learn more, visit nextgen.com. Advanced analytics can help predict and manage appropriate care, but an equally important factor is a strong provider-patient relationship. This week, we welcome a guest, Dr. Wendy Sue Swanson, who served as Chief Digital Officer for Seattle's Children's Hospital. In her career, Dr. Swanson has enjoyed roles as a pediatrician, entrepreneur, author, and consultant. She'll be a keynote speaker at MGMA's upcoming virtual event the Medical Practice Excellence Conference, which will be held October 19th through the 21st. Dr. Swanson, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Now, I've been asking everybody this who comes on the podcast, where has your focus and where has your work been during COVID-19? Yeah, well, it's been squished into a very uncomfortable box. <laughs> so, you know, like everybody, um, this has, of course, um, been extremely uncomfortable for me. And yet I work in a unique way now 
um, as the chief medical officer of a startup based out of Silicon Valley in California, but I'm based in Madison, Wisconsin. So it used to be that I was on an airplane every week, um, kind of flying and fluttering around and giving talks and contributing and learning and working with people. And of course, now I sit uh, at home from my home office and work um, all day kind of tethered to this computer. Uh, I run a medical team. I'm partnering right now uh, with Duke Clinical Research Institute to run a, a study um, and in addition do a lot of health education. So as I was just mentioning to you, I just recorded another podcast with the American Academy of Pediatrics on influenza and COVID. So my, my job, like so many of us, so uncomfortably uh, went from a very diverse work week and a very diverse work day to um, rigorous, um, tethered, kind of Monday through Friday plus weekends sitting uh, in front of like we are right now uh, in Zoom. So I'm working like so many, you know, I guess executives in healthcare do and managerial type roles and, and researchers do. And for example, you know, my, my husband is a practicing physician and academic pediatric radiologist. So he's in the hospital three or four days a week and kind of coming back and forth with call. And so I'm seeing the other side, of course, of, of, of practice. And of course, many of my colleagues and friends are, are active clinicians in, in clinical practice too. So, you know, I work in the space of innovation and translation, and now I'm working to build out a company really in, in the field of prevention. Um, but I sit at my computer all day and, and like so many of us, um, I'm finding this, uh, wildly exhausting uh, in a way that's surprising. I mean, most people who meet me recognize like I can hold like four jobs at a time and I can work 60, 70 hours a week and I can be on an airplane every couple of days and can work at a television station and do a book, blah, blah, blah. You know, like so many of us in medicine, I really love to work and I can flex into extreme environments. Uh, but I'll tell you the emotional toll on on this way of life, um, while also I'm a, I'm a mother to two children uh, who are doing full virtual learning right now mm -hmm. uh, is, is extraordinary. And I was the stupid person who just got a second puppy. <laughs> so like, <laughs> I tried to augment my life with meaning and poetry, right. but it, uh, it's really rigorous. So it's a long answer, but I, I just want to be really honest that I find this deeply uncomfortable mm -hmm. um, and frankly, unexpectedly exhausting. Yeah. I, I, echo those sentiments completely. We at MGMA, we have weekly meetings. We have developed a, what we call meditation Monday that's open to everybody in our company. And uh, we get together just to get centered, just to kind of, you know, try to calm all the chaos and noise that may be going on around us or in our heads and, mm -hmm. and just relax and, and just meditate for 10, 15 minutes there every mm -hmm. Monday to kind of start the day and start the week that way. So it's mm -hmm. been really helpful for us. Um, well, those, those acts of intention, right, as leaders, I think we, we always think about work-life balance and, and workplace kind of safety and harmony. Um, and right now, it, it's taking increased intention to formalize it because of necessity. I mean, it, we used to kind of squeak around and, and get by, even though we know, for example, right, physicians are one of the most unhappy professions out there. We, we, we kill each other at a higher rate than the public. And in fact, in, in one of, you know, when you look at data on physicians, including training physicians, right, rates of suicide are, are extreme. Um, that's not that different for practicing bedside nurses. And here we are squeezing frontline healthcare providers and those who support them, manage the systems, um, deal with the loss of revenue, try to keep the lights on and everybody employed. I mean, I think your audience here and all of us are in this together, but it, but it, 
it's so cliche, but it does take care at ensuring that um, you, you keep iterating on this. And, and to your point on Meditation Mondays, that those acts from leadership or from groups or from employers can be deeply powerful because they just stake out the, the importance. We had a, um, an, an old um, parent friend of ours. I, you know, I lived in Seattle for almost 20 years and much of what I'll talk about at the keynote um, is the work of creating innovation and entrepreneurism inside a hospital system. And before I left to now be, you know, kind of in the startup environment and a, a friend uh, ended her life by suicide recently in Seattle. And it, it sent this shock, of course, through the community and also through me, like a, like a lightning of it is so staggering that we're talking about the social determinants of health and yet more than ever our workplace environments can be changed and that can even include blocking time to your point creating intention around meditation or the practice of gratitude journaling and or being really clear as company leaders that if we know that people are balancing the needs of their families making sure that everybody at the company knows it's okay when a dog or a kid or a grandma comes walking through the video screen. It's not unprofessional. Um, and, and if somebody has to mute their phone or walk away from the video camera for a second, that it's okay. It's expected, right? The, the kind of enormity of duality that's being asked of people in the environment has to be struck with leaders to say, we recognize that this tension and we won't be unrealistic. I mean, I think, you know, here in Madison, for example, you know, I'm not affiliated, but Epic is, is based here in Madison. And you probably heard there was quite a dust up when Judy Faulkner, you know, said, you know, on the 21st of September, everybody's coming back to campus. And, and here they were, a technology company in the middle of the cornfields here. And, and there was outrage, right? That in the healthcare systems place, um, she was gonna mandate something that really didn't, didn't have a ton of medical sense behind it. Um, and, and that's, you know, I, I'm, I'm critical of her only because um, that kind of that kind of black and white or in, intolerant type dictum is, is probably never going to work right now. And everybody's fingerprint existence is different. So same with people making decisions about their kids going back to school. I mean, as a pediatrician, I am doing a ton of advising and educating about schooling and also doctoring and, and mother doctoring um, during this time. And everybody gets to make the decision that's best for their family, their unique risks and their unique needs. And, and then we do our best to be as transparent and squeaky in the systems, you know, to learn about. Right. Yeah, I, I want to touch on a, a few of the topics you just brought up. You wrote a book a few years ago. I want to get this title right. Mama Doc Medicine, Finding, finding Calm and Confidence in Parenting, Child Health, and Work-Life Balance. It was like you were looking in a crystal ball at what was going to happen now because we've, we've seen, obviously, you were talking about the clinicians on the, on the front line uh, with healthcare, but we've got parents as well on the front line, particularly women. We've seen studies already on that where they've been put into stressful situations while continuing to work, keep their jobs going, while also truly managing that family while all the kids are at home in a way that they haven't been in the past. Um, help us understand that. Help us understand how to get to the heart of that work-life balance where we can still continue to be productive productive workers, but also be loving parents or loving family members and, and uh, members of our community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, my, my first answer to you is, of course, the, you know, we all have a, um, a kind of belief that, there, that we categorically partition out our work and our life. Um, and I'll say, 
my my career as an example or my intention in my career as an example is antithetic to that in that you know when i started writing the, the book is a product of the blog which was the first physician authored blog for any hospital in this country that you know i convinced seattle children's hospital and the university of washington to say a bioethics trained board certified pediatrician can start writing a mommy blog on behalf of the sake of science and and they were going to pay me for it. it wasn't a little it wasn't a little gig on the side it was hey i have to pay i, I borrowed two hundred thousand dollars to go to medical school i have to pay for my nanny to take care of my kids while i do it i can go to clinic and i can see patients or i can do this and translate to the masses and and so uh, you know that was the beginning of me saying my work and my life are both important and they're intertwined now it doesn't have to be that way for everybody some people really like the partition but i started to create narrative and anecdote to say here's my life raising a six-month-old at the time and a two and a half year old at the time and here's the data on vaccines that's coming out and here's what's happening with influenza and here's what's happening with diapers and here's what's happening with a you know a, a rotavirus outbreak or here's what's happening and, and translate that in, in real time and so for me, I've always felt that that was the beginning of a, of a true earnest synergy for me that my life and my work are part of the same thing. And your point on the squish and the, and the discomfort that is uniquely burdened to women is not new to women. It is just the severity of this. So I know the silly examples of, of, of household work, right? The burden of household work, even in a, in a shared family environment, typically falls greater on a, a woman than a man in a traditional heterosexual marriage arrangement. Um, what we're finding right now, of course, is that you know those of, of um, low SES, or we know our frontline essential workers, right? That, that being somebody at the grocery store, someone at a fast food restaurant, someone in an emergency room, someone driving an ambulance, right? Someone in the police force, that those those workers have to leave their home and their children are at home and their daycare is closed. <laughs> so what's, what's, what's someone to do, right? I mean, the tension um, is elevated. And then simultaneously, even for someone as kind of privileged and easy as I have it of a, um, an executive physician who can hire additional support. And yet, you know, many days I have two dogs, two kids, full you know, category of meetings and I'm squished at home. So I think, I don't know that the book was per se prescient, but it was the beginning for me of recognizing and realizing that the humanism in healthcare, that the deep translation, that, the, that when, my, when my, my advice came as, if I was trying to position the science and safety on vaccinations, for example, take one vaccine, measles, mumps, rubella vaccine. If I wanted to teach a mom about that, I could put on my paternalistic Dr. Swanson hat, or I could use all of my training and simultaneously talk kind of mom to mom in this kind of peer-to-peer -peer environment in a mommy blog, because at that time, this is now a long time ago, but 2009, blogs were still pretty new and moms were starting to read it and it was dynamically changing how anecdote and evidence were pitted against each other. So, and I'll talk about that a bit in the keynote, but it, I used to try to convince people that social media mattered. And I don't need to convince anybody of that now with the presidential election and with, you know, from Arab Spring to unrest around the world to, vaccine hesitancy to um, systemic racism and to even the even just recently in, in, in here in the state of Wisconsin, the concerns that even anti-riot um, violence occurred because of a Facebook group that mobilized, right? I mean, our public health, our social determinants, our safety, our well-being, our mental health, and our way of life, right, is, is reliant on how we use these different technologies to be more, most kind of who we are. So of anything, I'll just say, I think as leaders, a reminder here, like you're saying, we're learning more. Um, use your instinct now, use data as much as you can, and create systems that allow for flexible work schedules, for 
um, you know, my silly example about a kid running through a computer screen, whatever it is that you're starting to, to recognize that, you know, for example, in our company, I, I work for a company named Before Brands, and we're working to prevent food allergies in children. And, you know, we're doing better than we've ever done before from a standpoint of the amount of work we're out Putting, right? We know that recent data that was published in Forbes, for example, found that, you know, on average, Americans are working like 48 more minutes a day, not less, but more, right? There's nothing else to do, but it's also the, the work burden, you know, is different. We may be less efficient. We may be more efficient. It, it probably depends, but recognizing that's not necessarily good for us at a time of unique social strife and stress, but it's always, the, it's always from the top. It's always going to be managers and executives that can change the culture at which we get the work done. You can't close your clinics probably in, in ways to accommodate that. You can't close your EDs. You want to make sure your hospitals remain profitable, but how you get the work done and listening, you know, there, there's a quote that I'll, I'll likely include in, in the talk I give that I love that came from the Institute of from IHI and Don Berwick, I think, in a white paper. And it was the CEO that would go around a healthcare system and, and ask people, phlebotomists, nursing aides, um, you know, sanitation workers, whoever it is, physicians, anyone, and say, you know, what rules are you breaking to do what's best for your patient? So what, what, what are the end arounds that everybody's doing? And, and for me, I, my, my interest is always in how do you layer in technology that's cost effective, affordable, maintains intimacy between doctors and patients or care teams and patients or family members? And, and what are the end arounds and why are they happening? It means your system's broken when people are having to go around it. And back in the old days, it was nurses and doctors were texting patients outside of HIPAA compliant places because they just wanted people access to their data because we didn't create transparency in the system. We didn't have technological access, even open notes. I mean, recently as a patient myself here in the system in the University of Wisconsin, you know, I can't get all of my data still. I can't get access to my x-rays. I can't get access to my mammography rate. I don't see the full path report. I get my little, even though that's open notes, that's full transparency, but I can't get what I need. So if I want a second opinion, I still have to put a fax in to request from the medical records for them to put my x-ray on a CD so that my husband could read it. I mean, it's preposterous, right? Yeah. And so, you know, we're still not there. So anyway, those, those end arounds, I think, in the work-life balance place and in your delivery of healthcare moving forward, it's an amazing question to keep asking. You should ask everybody, mm -hmm. what rules are they doing? What rules are they breaking to do what's best for their patients? And then systematically fund and invent solutions that allow it so that it's not an end around anymore. Because mm -hmm. people in the health space want to do what's best for patients and families. We know yeah. that. Yeah. Um, you had mentioned earlier, you're a featured speaker at MGMA's upcoming Medical Practice Excellence Conference. It's going to be held in October. Your topic is titled, Balancing the Human Touch with Digital Innovation to Enhance Patient Experience. That's what you've been talking about. We're really at this, uh, not a crossroads, but at this point where technology with the regulations loosened for uh, telehealth mm -hmm. that we've seen during the pandemic, uh, that people have taken advantage of it. And I've, you, you've heard this and probably said it a few times, the genie's out of the bottle now. Patients mm -hmm. are going, oh my gosh, I can have a virtual mm -hmm. visit. This thing's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. um, let's talk about that. What what are some of the main themes then or ideas that you would want someone to get from uh, that keynote address that you're going to be giving? Yeah, and I, well, I, I want this to extend just outside of telemedicine and, mm -hmm. and the practice of telehealth, you know, in that 
thankfully, you know, we've, we're dismantling the old system. And in unbelievable rapid time this past spring, we resurrected in some ways a philosophy that said, wait, hey, to get business and to help people, we, we, we have to practice in a new way. Rather than it taking three years to implement a telemedicine program, some were stood up in a matter of days, right? Which, was, which is emblematic to my experiences of working in health systems. And you know, I was the chief of digital innovation at Seattle Children's and founded that department and built software and technologies and kind of brought new things. And I'll give some examples during the talk on that. Um, but that it really demands, when, when you look at health systems, what is really mission priority? What is the heart and soul of the organization, and, and what will be true? What will truly happen? You know, the COVID pandemic brought on absolute necessity for rapid change, and our goal now is to not dismantle it, but to continue to innovate around it. And and one one herald, I'll, I'll say that you know, having been on Twitter now for I don't know eleven years, and Facebook, and you know, I wrote over eight hundred blog posts and did thousands of YouTube videos, and I'm on Doximity, I'm on you know. Um, Instagram. I've tried, kind of tried it all. I have not done mm -hmm. TikTok. I, I feel okay. somewhat, somewhat proud <laughs> that I have not. I think I'm an old enough lady now that I haven't done TikTok. But, but the, um, I'll, I'll tell you, if anything I, I know is that when I started to use different social channels that we could call fluff, you know, there was always this concern that not only the electronic health record of the computer in the exam room was taking away our ability to connect, to provide hands-on care, and to provide care that was um, deeply compassionate, accurate, timely, um, and meaningful. And that, you know, there were lots of clinicians at the time of, of EMR implementation and online orders and that were going against, like, that we had to get everybody in, that the human touch, we were going to miss physical exam findings, we weren't going to connect. But of anything I know, I know that, and I, I use this word carefully, but that those who need help, we can call them patients and or family and caregivers, and those who have help, doctors, patient, or doctors, nurses, phlebotomists, whoever, can have intimate connections and relationships in and using digital technology. I know that from using Twitter to the masses. I know that from using Facebook. I know that from writing blogs and content. I know that from using, you know, e-messages and from using an electronic health record. And, I, you know, I, there's no question that it's there um, and it's possible, but it doesn't replace what's most meaningful, which is that relationship forever. The relationship of someone who needs help and the relationship that they form and forge and build trust and credibility with from somebody who has the answers or can navigate a system or create advocacy in um, will always be the most valued. Now, I think, I think we are going to see a recoil when, when the world opens up again, whenever that is. I mean, COVID's not going away for decades, uh, but probably our freedoms will return to us in certain ways, let's say, a year or two from now when we have a more vaccinated population, we know better ways to take care of people, um, and we understand the certainties and uncertainties of COVID-19 in ways we don't yet today. But when that comes back, you know, do I want to choose a telehealth visit with my clinician or am I going to want to go in? I mean, I think we're going to see a surge of in-person demand because we're all, it's just like, can you imagine the travel industry? I mean, let's all put our money in the travel industry for next year when everybody's going to take their trip to Cancun. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, they're like, the borders are going to open. We're going to get out of here, you know, but, but, but at the same time, to your point, you know, you can do post-op visits virtually. They're bundled payments. That, we've done that for a long time in telemedicine. But, and we've done mental health pretty well across the world and country using telemedicine. It's the harder stuff of, well, when can I, I'm just giving an example of the pediatrician, when is it okay to see 
a child who's age five who may not need a routine vaccination for a wellness visit from home. Is, is that better for a working mom or a working family or a working dad that can't get in? And is it enough? Do I need to see that child? Is their body, do I need to do a physical exam? And we're going to figure that out over time. Um, but that this extends so far past telemedicine. This is how are you doing your scheduling? How are you helping people do wayfinding? How are you allowing their voice to be relevant? So yeah, you're doing your, you're doing your press gainies or your NRC health scores there at the end of the visit. What are you doing with the results from that? And how are you redesigning the system? You know, one of the tenets of, of vaccine science is, you know, there are three parts of, of, of vaccines. They have to be safe, they have to be effective, and they have to be convenient. Healthcare is not convenient. Um, you can try to tell me that your system is awesome. I have yet to interact as a patient, as a daughter of someone with a chronic disease, as a mother, um, and, and as, a, as a friend, <laughs> um, you know, and as a pediatrician in a system that really works just frictionless, right? And we can learn a lot. You know, I'll talk a little bit about Starbucks and some other models. We can learn mm -hmm. a lot from the health system. We right. learn a lot from valuing the patient voice, from valuing what transparency and access to data will do, um, and peer-to-peer. And then we can learn from these large companies of, of what happens when you take friction away. And, and like the example of Starbucks, for example, is learning from their chief digital officer, some of the tenants of how they designed their app. And, and right. I'll share stories about that. But it, it wasn't that they took a bunch of people thinking about coffee. In mm -hmm. fact, they brought in a theologian and they said, you know, when somebody goes to Starbucks and buys a $4.85 latte, the reason they're doing that is they want to buy the start of a day. They're not buying a coffee. They're buying the start to a day. When somebody goes to the doctor, right, or the nurse practitioner, or the PA, the reason they're going is usually one of two things, and a colleague told me this a long time ago. It is either that they are in pain and it needs to be taken care of, or they need to squelch some sort of anxiety about a condition. Every prevention visit falls under that. Every other visit falls on that. They're either in pain emotionally or physically, or they need to tap down some sort of anxiety that they, they need to solve something. I mean, how are we creating convenience around that? And, you know, a trend that I've been following quite a bit and evangelizing and, and you know, in the last year or two, even speaking at large conferences is, is voice technology. You know, we expect that in the next couple of years, 50% of search will occur because of voice, likely start with voice technology. Now that can just be Siri on your Apple phone or Alexa in your kitchen or now Halo just launched. I mean, you know, how are we going to be hands-off and free and not just think about moving the supplies around the hospital, but deeply thinking about how do I think about my experience of when I'm late for an appointment or when I need to make an appointment or when I want to follow my, my, follow my labs, or when I'm in the hospital room and I'm trying to get my father-in-law out of the hospital, what are the discharge criteria that I need to make to get there? What if we did what hot hotels do where you're on your first morning, you wake up in the Marriott in San Francisco and you get a text message that says, what could I do to make this stay better for you? What if I was using voice to do that in a hospital and I thought then about the care team that specifically could hear? What if I allowed people access into their record to co-manage their record and contribute? So if we do, you know, if we do patient-centered rounds and we stand in the patient's room with the care team and the family members and we involve them, are we allowing that patient to set the agenda for the day to say, what's most important to me to have the question answered is this? Can 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 we ask? a little speaker next to their bedside for them to just put it and could it automatically upload into the system and that you could not click through the Tylenol order without making sure that you document that you answered that patient's question. 
where is the system and where is the hospital that has mandated that? If we cared about what patients wanted to know and how they felt, we would act like hotels and coffee companies and airlines, frankly. You know, and I think there's a lot to learn in those spaces. And so, you know, we are still incented to get everybody in and make them sit in the waiting room and sit in the office. And as parodies come to telemedicine, that will dismantle it in part. But as hospital systems, we can do a lot more. I'll tell you, you can make stuff up. You can be an idealist. You do not have to wait. You do not have to look at that Domino pizza that I can order a Domino's pizza and I can watch it get made stuck in a car and I can track it on an app and watch it be delivered to my house just like I could order a hamburger from McDonald's and Uber Eats will go pick it up and I'll know exactly where the hamburger is. But somebody last week took a piece out of my body for a biopsy and until somebody called me three days later, I didn't even know where it was. Hmm. So what are we doing? We're not that different. We could have things be that inventive and that accessible. Or for example, my mom got a lab back in her MyChart yesterday um, and she said, I can't find the lab. Can you log into my MyChart? Now, I, as her daughter physician advocate, I don't have my own portal into her chart. I just use her password. My end around, the rule that I'm breaking is I know my mom's login and my mom's password. And of course she lets access to the record. I log in and then I go to look at her fish, which is a kind of high level site of genetics on, on a cell of the bloodline. And it says C-scanned report. No scan report, no scan file. I know where if I were in the provider view, I know where to go. But in the patient portal, I can't even find it. Right. I mean, that's healthcare. Yet I can order a Domino's pizza. <laughs> I can know exactly where it is and when it's gonna show it to my door. So, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll chat about that. But I think what we need to do is constantly um, think outside of billing codes, of course, and start really thinking about how people feel when they're accessing care and when they can't access it and data and, and then design, design around that. So I'll give some examples of how I've kind of, how I built a voice technology inside a hospital, how we were the first hospital in the country that we know to put Alexa's in the waiting room. And what did most people do? They listened to Christmas music because <laughs> it was December, but, um, but I learned a lot from it and I, I'll talk a little bit about that too. Sure. Um, a final thought for you. Uh, one of the things that you talk about and you've been bringing up some really good examples here is the personalizing of the patient experience. And you were using those consumer examples, one that it made me, it just took me back to this past weekend. I've got a teenage daughter. We're learning how to drive together, so to speak. Ah. I'm riding shotgun and yeah. learning some things. And <laughs> I had the Starbucks app open. So while she's yeah. driving, yeah. she gives me her order. So yeah. I type it in and the first location, it's not available. She wanted the bacon Gouda cheese sandwich. It wasn't there. Uh -huh. Went to the second place, wasn't there. This is all mm -hmm. on the app. And then the third place had it. We plugged it in. She continues to drive and we go get her order, customized, personalized, just like she wants it. So yeah. final thoughts from you then. <laughs> How do you see us personalizing the patient experience moving forward. How do we make that work? Yeah, so I, I love that you brought that up in that, and you know, Starbucks will have a favorite in there and she can keep yep. her bacon, Gouda, yum, whatever sandwich <laughs> and she doesn't even have to search for it, right? right. And um, she can order it, they'll tell you when it's ready, you can go pick it up. I mean, a nice parallel example to that is, you know, in the last decades, right, when we started to put ER wait times online. Right? People would recognize, wait, am I going to go there or am I going to go there? Am I, is it worth driving an extra 15 minutes so I don't have to wait an hour and a half? Right? We, we've started to kind of emulate that in the system. Um, but I think that 
the personalized aspects of this continue to demand um, openness and, and a chipping away at the paternity that exists in healthcare. The idea that we as a system, or me as a doctor, I deserve to kind of shepherd someone through results even in a certain way. Um, and I'm gonna hold it until I think you should get it in the way that you should get it. Instead of saying, how would you like to learn about results? Do you want all of the results right when they come? Or do you want them to wait for a, for me, if I'm your primary care doctor, for me to interpret them and then get back to you and translate them? Now, instead of allowing people to choose who they are and what persona they are and how they want to learn, we just decide how they're going to learn. So that's one example. So we could innovate around choice and allow people opt in, opt out, et cetera. I think um, in addition, I think, you know, from 23andMe to other companies who are in the consumer space trying to chip away at saying, systems aren't gonna own patient data wholly, patients are gonna own data, and then we're gonna follow along. And what Anne Wojcicki has done there is absolutely mind-blowing to say, you're gonna spit in a little tube, some laboratory is gonna follow it, tell you what they know a little bit about it, try to, try to kind of familiarize it in, in your family and your connections and then simultaneously your traits that make it a little bit engaging and then say we're going to commit to you that over time as we learn about predisposition we'll inform you as we know it, it, it's the future which says patient owns data and I'm saying we get to also ask them do they want a paternalistic system because some people like paternalism and I do too at times with if I go in to see a clinician and say well when do you say what do you want to do I'll say well I actually came here because I want to know what you think I should do <laughs> right and and can we allow for that that choice and, and the, the, the idea of, so the other thing about your Starbucks and your daughter's example is that, you know, we are forever changed. We can go on the internet and self-diagnose in a matter of 25 seconds and systems that still don't want people to do that are living in the, in the ice age. People go online and they self-diagnose and about data shows from Pew, about 40% of the time they're right. So I don't go online and get it all wrong. Four out of 10, um, and if you're college educated, your, your precision goes up. Um, and health systems like Mayo Clinic, who launched mayoclinic.com back in 1995, have figured out how to get that data out to the world and help them. It's not a problem for the system. It's, people don't stay there. If they have a lump under their neck and they're worried that it's lymphoma, they want to go in and, and get that reassurance from a system. So it's, it's, again, thinking then, how does that person want to be seen? How do they want to learn? Do they like telemedicine? Do they want it to be just audio? Do they want to have a video? Do they feel more comfortable? Do they want a text message reminder? Do they want a phone call reminder? Why don't we ask? them always, not just in our trying to make sure that our business and our light stand so that they come and they don't know show, but sincerely ask them so that we say, you know, that they are known to us, that we remember what they told us the first time, that we don't hand them a clipboard for the fifth time in a row that asks them the same questions. Right. You have a computer that can remember it, reposition it to them and ask them if it's still the same or if something's changed and then ask them how they want to do it. And I think, I think that's where we're going. And I think, um, I think that uh, that's where leaders have to be. You can't dismantle where we are, but it's really not good enough. Yeah. And the reason that, you know, there was a JAMA article that was just published looking at screening for cancers. And I'll just use the example of breast mammography that we recommend in 45, you know, women all every single year, age 45 and up. And that breast cancer diagnoses are down over 50% each week right now. Now that's not because there's less breast cancer. It just means that nobody trusts the system that you guys are in to go in and get their mammography. And why? What have we done? Now there's a pandemic, <laughs> there's a lot going, but what, what can we do to change that? And, and you're gonna have to think uniquely about your community, about your staff, about the machines and the awkwardness of getting screening. <laughs> but the, if we don't do it well, the burden of disease and the cost of care will only go up.
All right. Well, Dr. Swanson, this has been a great talk. I, I really appreciate your insights and looking forward to hearing you speak at uh, Impact coming up in October. Yeah, thanks for having me. I got all fiery like I usually do, and I, I appreciate the opportunity. I look forward to the talk. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Insights. Thanks to our guest, Dr. Wendy Sue Swanson. To learn more from Dr. Swanson, you can hear her speak at MGMA's virtual Medical Practice Excellence Conference, October 19th through the 21st. Be sure to register for the event at mgma.com slash MPEC. Also, thanks to First Healthcare Compliance and NextGen Healthcare for sponsoring this week's show. To learn more about the FIRST Healthcare Compliance Platform, go to firsthcc.com. And to learn more about how NextGen Healthcare is empowering the transformation of ambulatory practices, visit nextgen.com. If you like the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcast. If you have topics you'd like us to cover, or experts you'd like us to interview, email us at podcast at mgma.com or find me on Twitter at MGMA Daniel. MGMA Insights is presented by Declan McGee, Rob Ketchum, and I'm Daniel Williams. Stay safe and thanks for listening. Hi, this is Declan McGee, one of the producers for the MGMA Insights podcast. If you like the work we're doing, please consider becoming an MGMA member. Learn more at mgma.com slash membership. Thanks.